going to title this opener uh, She Touched My Peppy Steve. Oh, um, boy. Because oh. I'm thinking oh, about boy. the multiplicity factor. Yeah. It's right? Fun. There it is. Yeah, see? Yeah, I knew, you knew I was going yeah. somewhere. Oh, man. I love multiplicity so much. It's such a fun movie, and it oh. doesn't get nearly enough love. But, yeah, what would you do if you had an identical twin and could get away with the swapsy swapsies? I wouldn't. I'd kill them. You'd kill them immediately. I mean, if you meet your twin, no, kill don't them. trust a doppelganger. No. I, I was thinking though, is it a is it a funny bit to ask twins if they like the movie Dead Ringers? They've probably not seen it. Yeah, I know it's. But a fun they're bit. always being asked. I assume it's not going to hit with every twin. They probably ask more about twins or Parent probably. Trap or yeah, Parent Trap. Uh, yeah, I don't want the double though. Seems like too much responsibility. I'd probably work that thing where we could like just split work, like we just each yeah, take a day in or take a day go to school off. Once, I'd yeah. work half the time. Yeah. Just share the day, like take notes, be like, here's what we did today. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I would definitely, definitely slack off in life. Neither one of us would overachieve. See, there's the thing, though, Dustin. Yeah. You, you trust yourself too much. I, I don't trust a double of me not to try and get one over on me prime. See, yeah. what, what I'm worried about is, like, I'm Ellie, and I'm, like, making it and accomplishing stuff, and I've got to clean up all the wreckage of my Bev. Mm, right? See, I'm worried <laughs> Elliot's going to try and steal my life and take yeah. credit for everything that I do. I'd be more Bev. I'd be just hanging out in the background, and somebody make me want to do something I didn't want to do. There we go. Yeah, Arthur, I think we're on the same page a little bit with this one. Yeah, uh, I, I don't I, want the Elliot in my life. I, I, am smug. I good? With, am I good with the difficult ones, or am I good with the frivolous ones? That is the question, right? Uh, I'm not sure. It's funny you brought up Steve, though. Uh, mm-hmm. Just the name Steve, because one of the brain weevils I've had this week is, uh, or no, it's Stan, not Steve. Uh, but one of the brain weevils I've had this week is, oh, I don't want to go out like Stan. You guys know about this? Mm-mm. Something apparently the Ding Dong said while he was in the hospital with COVID. Stan's one of his buddies that oh. died. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he said, I don't want to go out like Stan. And that's just the thing I uh, think about while I'm washing dishes. <laughs> How you could be one of the dyers? <laughs> no, just just the phrase. I don't want to go out like Stan. I don't want to go out like Stan. Yeah. I don't want to go out like Stan. I don't want to go like Stan. No, no one wants to go out like Stan. And true. nobody wants their double to steal their life. Right. Also true. And then we think of Steve Carlsberg versus um, Cecil Palmer. Ah, that yeah, kind of that doppelganger. Yeah. yeah, doppelgangers. The, we're we're talking about. Image. Are we going to talk about doppels this week? I, I, I don't. I see how we could not. Well, yeah, that feels like a good time to start the show. Yeah, hello everybody, welcome again to the Good Trash Undercast. We gather around a table, we'll discuss films you'll never discuss in a film studies course. This week's film is David Cronenberg's Jeremy Irons led. Film Dead Ringers, which is um, not what you might expect. Uh, but anyway, we're going to be talking about that movie uh, here in just a few minutes. I am still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. I am still Dalton. Or am I? Or am I? We should have all said like different names. Yeah, we should have. <laughs> well, uh, Justin, Dylan, and Aaron. Aaron, yeah. for sure. Okay. I couldn't think of anything better. I'm sorry. That's no, fine. It's oh, okay. Um. <laughs> Are Todd? <laughs> yeah, look, I'm not in love with Dylan. If that makes you feel better. Uh, anyway, uh, we're gonna be talking about Dead Ringers. Now, to warn you, dear listener, this is an analysis show, not a review show, and that does mean we're gonna spoil the film, including its ending, which is somewhat significant, I suppose, for the final understanding of the film. So, if you have not seen Dead Ringers and don't want to be spoiled, you want to listen carefully to what I'm about to say, because here is the spoiler warning right up front. We'll do a synopsis, which will be spoiler free. We'll do our thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, which will be spoiler light. Then we get down into a exercise of the mind. In which we call expanding the syllabus. I'm having trouble forming the words all of a sudden. We'll get there. Um, we're, we're all in this together. I have um, the utmost confidence. In which you. is maybe the Dustin who shows up and flunders his words isn't the real Dustin. Maybe the more articulate Dustin is the real Dustin. 
Arthur, I can't have you putting these thoughts in my mind. <laughs> it's no re- good for me. There's a reason why we don't age. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> we spend the other day at a spa. <laughs> anyway, uh, we'll be spo- spoiler moderate during that uh, expanding the syllabus section of the podcast. And then finally, we get down to business and all spoiler bets are off. You have been warned. So without any further ado, Arthur Gordon, if you would, sir, delight us with that synopsis, please. Twin brothers Beverly and Elliot grew up in Toronto and went to Cambridge to gain their English accents. <laughs> Except for Cambridge, Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, twin brothers Beverly and Elliot operate a high-profile gynecological practice in Toronto. Elliot is the dashing extrovert who aims to wine and dine while delivering the speeches and securing grants. Beverly is awkward and introverted, working behind the scenes to develop new processes and ideas. After Elliot seduces Claire Nouveau, a washed-up actress and their patient, he convinces Beverly to do the same. But Beverly becomes attached. When Claire realizes what's going on, it sends Beverly spiraling. Yes, indeedy. That is the film. It is a love triangle with twins. Is Claire washed up? They kind of hint it because she's there doing a miniseries like to try really to recoup her, to rec- yeah. her career. She's uh, kind of okay. in that late phase of her. She's interesting middle-aged actress. Yeah, this to... is back when TV was slumming it. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's right. And she was probably in the, what? Late 30s, early 40s. So yeah. she's yeah, kind of the 80s. I don't know. Wa- she's quote unquote washed up gotcha. as far as gotcha. the, the lifehood of a, a young celebrity and female screen and, actor. Yeah. yeah. And okay. she's a trifurcate. We'll talk more about that later. <laughs> Weird movie. <laughs> <laughs> I am so excited because this movie is gnarly. But let's go but ahead and. N- do some- but not. But not. We'll talk about that. Let's do some thumbs up, thumbs down reviewing, though. Dalton, you did pick this film. Um, defend your selection and uh, tell us what you thought of it. Well, yeah, you mentioned Gnarly, and uh, I, I feel like part of my review on this film is kind of talking about the content. So I guess that's the this is the big CW's, uh, you know, home of the Flash and Arrow. No, it's the content warnings. Uh, so you hear that Cronenberg, uh, famous goopy filmmaker David Cronenberg, made a movie about nefarious gynecologist uh, twins played by Jeremy Irons. And you think, well, that sounds like a horrifying film. I don't know that I ever want to see it. Um, I don't know. And I it's guess what I thought. It's what I thought. Uh, was yes. this the first time for both of you as well? Correct. Yes. Okay. See, this is what I've always thought. Big part of why I've never gotten around to the film. And really, it is not that kind of movie. It is a much more restrained, much more. Uh, uh, concerned with dramatic realism type David Cronenberg. Uh, Dustin Off Air, you said it's it's kind of a uh, very later period Cronenberg, and I'd say that's fair, especially based on a lot of what he's doing in the 90s and 2000s. Um, but yeah, it, it's not the kind of movie you're thinking it is. Now, I will say that the film is pretty harrowing, uh, pretty horrifying from an emotional point of view, and that is where the, the horror from this film really comes, because more than you know, a, a body horror movie that you would expect from Cronenberg. It is a character study, uh, I think, before it's anything else. But that doesn't mean it is not horrifying in that study of character, in that study of uh, mental health and il- mental illness and insanity. And I, I think that is what I most appreciate about this film is because it is a film so concerned with uh, neuroses uh, and... Uh, battles of uh, mental will and dominance and gaslighting and all of these things i i so much appreciate uh, when i saw the runtime of this film was two hours my first thought was what huh and it doesn't it really does fly by i watched this film in pieces a little bit which probably helped you know made a snack got up and you know finished some laundry but i i really kind of enjoyed watching it over you know a two-hour movie over probably two hours and 45 minutes because there's a there is kind of a chap chapter-esque 
feeling to this in, in that so much of it is just conversation. There's not like a huge amount of plot. It is a lot of spending time with the two Jeremy Irons and, and also with uh, Claire, uh, played by Geneva Bujold, who's really, really, really good in this. Uh, and I kind of would have liked a lot more of her. We'll probably get to that at some point. But yeah, I, I just totally go for this film. Uh, and uh, I've avoided it for such a long time, just again, because of subject matter and, and uh, who's involved. I've been like, I don't know if this one's for me. And it's just it's just a different movie than I expected. Uh, do you all know that this is a, a TIFF, the Toronto International Film Festival? They rated this uh, one of the top 10 Canadian films of all time. It's a really it high regarded. I mean, it's yeah. on like Entertainment Weekly's top 20 horror films. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, their 04 list and their 15 list. Uh, it Number six in 04, number seven in, in 2015. But uh, yeah, I, I learning that, I was like, well, this makes a lot of sense because it is... Again, it is, Arthur, you talked a lot about the ideas of elevated horror last week, and this kind of is definitely in that mode. Somebody could call it that, for sure. It is very uh, restrained in, in its the kind of horror that it's interested in doing. Don't get me wrong, it's trying to put all kinds of creepy and upsetting connections in your mind, right? Like, we start on this really, really great opening title sequence that's just filled with uh, medieval and renaissance medical art. Uh, and that's very disturbing uh, because that kind of stuff is, uh, to me at least anyway. Uh, and the connections that continue throughout the film um, are from the, those opening artworks is, is really interesting. And the connections between uh, medicine and art made throughout this film, I think, are really interesting. Um, I, I appreciate Cronenberg also trying to get the entertainment industry uh, involved in the story and he, just his his knowledge of show business and kind of letting that inform places the story goes. I enjoy that. And I, I'm mentioning just kind of all of these these bits and pieces because for me, this might be one of my favorite Cronenbergs. I, I think it really is having kind of just sampled different pieces of his career throughout my, my you know, my film watching experience. I haven't really, you know, tackled him start to finish as a filmmaker, but I've, you know, sampled a lot of stuff over kind of the span of his career. And this is one, you know, right in the middle of his filmography that to me does kind of seem to bring everything that he's doing together. We talked about that a little bit a couple weeks ago with, you know, Romero and Day of the Dead kind of being a, a real mm -hmm. feeling of like synthesis. And I feel that way about, about this film a lot. Uh, just kind of the considerations that Cronenberg has. And it's just, I don't know, really interesting follow-up when you think about The the Fly being the film that precedes this. Uh, again, two films concerned with uh, the, the human body as macabre, uh, films concerned with science and medicine. Uh, I think it's really interesting in that regard, just from that kind of thinking about it in that sort of auteurist, careerist mindset. Uh, getting aside from that stuff, though, these performances are great. I know I already... I uh, referenced uh, Genevieve's, uh, French-Canadian, I don't know, I'm not, uh, names are hard sometimes. Uh, fantastic. And Irons is really, really good. Uh, I worried about my ability to keep track of Elliot and Bev very early in this film. And I, I feel like within the first 15 minutes, I found myself kind of getting in the groove of who's who and uh, kind of getting on. Uh, on board with the Irons performance. Uh, and then there is some really great uh, photography in this. I feel like I read uh, on IMDb, and this could be apocryphal because you know how that kind of trivia is, uh, but this was one of the first films to use a, a technique now common when trying to use an actor as a double is, you know, computer programming the cameras to make sure everything is exactly the same uh, to make it a little bit easier to shoot those uh, two sides of the scene. 
um, uh, apparently. Again, uh, this film and then I think Back to the Future 2 are two films like really early that are using that technique for shooting doubles. Um, so again, the kind of the ways in which this is a low-key Cronenberg special effects movie I think is really cool. I think it's fun to see him and his interest with effects that you know you see throughout his career kind of being put to a much more in the background uh, you know he, he's not so concerned with that being uh, at the forefront of the film as he is with something like the fly or scanners or even you know some of his even earlier more schlockier work if you want to think of it in those terms um, I think I'm going to go ahead and wrap up here because this this is kind of uh, I feel like a good place to leave it my thoughts on the film it, it's very good and there's a lot to talk about and I'm excited for us to get further into our discussion thank you very much for that Mr. Dalton Stewart what do you say Arthur other virgin watcher uh, one of three virgins involved in this film uh, and the, or this podcast uh, on this movie uh, what do you want to say about Dead Ringers uh, my notes just say no uh, so <laughs> I bet that just leaves it at that no whoa no, I'm just kidding um, <laughs> they do say that but it was un- unintentional um, I I I think it's a good movie. I think it's very well made. I just wasn't too invested in it. Okay. Uh, to me, I, I felt every one of the 120-something minutes of it. Sure. Um, and really, it was kind of after that you know, gear shift, I guess you'd call it, because I, I, I think a lot of it was just expectation, expectational, mm-hmm. um, because I thought the whole movie was going to be more focused on them doing that two-man con with women type thing. Mm. Um, and so I think when that gear shift happens and Claire figures out what's going on, and it becomes a much different film after that uh, about the character study. I think after that, it does become that really in-depth character study, human horror thing. And I, I just felt the narrative was a little too directionless in that regard. Um, yeah, I, I think that for me, Arthur, is the, the the chunk of the film that you're talking about where we've kind of entered the second act. And there's this really long stretch where Claire leaves the film and it becomes about Elliot trying to fix Bev. Yeah. And yeah, it's it's this really sort of it feels like an interchange in the in the film. Yeah, uh, I agree with you. That section feels a little long in the tooth. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I So I think narratively, I'm, I'm just not I was never really invested. I just couldn't really get into it. I think technically, though, I think it's standout. And so I do want to praise the film in that regard. It looks beautiful. Uh, the the color palettes used the red operating rooms, the red robes mm. is so great. Uh, the instruments that we see developed throughout the film, the nightmare fuel kind of metallurgical art pieces that he uh, has the artist create for him, uh, all of that stuff is really fascinating. I think you know I I, I do think Cronenberg's shoots it really well. He he directs he directs that element of it. So I think technically it comes together really interesting ways. Like you said, I, I mean, I think that the high praise of this film is Jeremy Irons, who somehow manages to create two indelibly different characters that you can tell apart, which I think is so key to this film working is him being able to do that. And then when it becomes more of that addiction thing and they do become a little off they they kind of start trading places or you're never really certain what's going on he starts Mm. to kind of pull that rug i I think a lot of that just relies more on irons and his performances than it does cronenberg Mm. and and so i think i I think it's his vehicle i think he owns it i think he's doing great work in both roles as as bev as elliot the moments of just pure heartbreak that he's able to portray late in the film and as they go through this spiral, I, I think he just nails it from from beginning to end. I, I think Jeremy Irons is just a master worker. Yeah, I know we're going to talk more about double performances in a little bit, Arthur. But uh, yeah, he, you know, a lot of those sorts of roles, uh, your your actor is getting 
some help from some prosthetics or you know yeah. or, stuff like that or, or co- like, even co- just dramatically different costumes. Yeah, or these. we did the Prestige a few weeks ago, sure. where Christian Bale's doing two roles. Spoiler alert! But um, they're very much the same character in a lot of regards because he can't let the show. He yeah. can't let that peek behind the curtain happen. On, on repeat viewings, it becomes more clear. There's a little bit. There, you know, one's a little more aggressive. There's a risk but it's, taker versus it's a yeah, lot more guy, subtle yeah. than what Irons is doing here. Yeah. And the stories of, you know, he had two separate dressing rooms with two separate costumes, and then he would start to piece together costumes from both yeah, and wardrobes like, right, I don't to start want messing two, with people. I don't want two dressing rooms anymore. Yeah. And it was his kind of, he, he understood there was supposed to be an uncertainty uh, throughout the back end mm-hmm. of the film. And, and I think that is the high praise of this film is I think he delivers probably the best dual performance I've seen in a film yeah, by yeah. a long shot. And, you know, it's not a knock, but I, I just think it's fascinating. And, and part of that is also on Cronenberg from a technical standpoint because it's seamless. Mm-hmm. I mean, it it feels like they are in that room together and you can never tell that they're not. And I think that is just just masterwork as well. Yeah, and it's not like uh, a lot of easy shot, reverse shot stuff either, no, right? I mean, like, they're side by side walking down halls and yeah. at tables together. Yeah. Well, as the tables together, I think really for me one of the big showpiece scenes of the film is Claire confronting. I, you know, this doesn't really feel like oh, yeah. a spoiler because you mentioned yeah. it in your synopsis, and it is kind of how Act One ends. Yeah, that is, I think, the scene of the movie. Yeah, uh, in a lot of ways for me. Uh, and, and again, it's it is two actors playing three actors, three characters total, and then a lot of close-ups, a lot of uh, not quite stepping on each other's lines, but there is like a a naturalism to the conversation that is really impressive. For me, one moment I really love uh, due to that is when uh, Elliot's giving a speech and Beverly shows up and interrupts it. Oh, that's a great one. And they get on stage together. And yeah, it's like two people. I mean, you you can't tell. Yeah, And I think that's incredible uh, the way that all comes together. So this is a movie I think it's incredibly well done. I, I do. I think people, you know, if they can handle the content, should watch it. Just didn't get some Yeah, it just yet. wasn't for me. Yeah. So so it's not a, I hate this movie. It's terrible. I'm just, meh. I'm just more of, I just couldn't connect with it. Sure. Fair enough, fair enough. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I, on the other hand, could entirely connect with this Yeah, movie. this is right up your alley. I really, really enjoyed it. And I'd been avoiding it because I just thought it was going to be this like this super, super rapey movie. Yeah. Uh, Same. It, and that's yeah. not really what it is. Or, again, sort of a Dr. Giggles kind of, you know, the doctor who also happens to be a slasher killer. You know, I also thought it was that. Yeah, it's not that kind of movie. In that 80s Cronenberg mode. And none of those things are what I found. I, I, I did find this a strong psychosexual drama uh, that's a character study. It will send you straight to brain heck. Don't get me wrong. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it'll uh, really, I mean, it's uh, kept me up quite late last night. Uh, it's been really troubling me today. So it's, I, I guess I just do want to throw in the caveats just because we're promising you it's not, um, you know, the... The, the the themes of a sexual assault uh, that are definitely in the film are, are not as, uh, you know, graphic or uh, exploitative as they could be. And just because we're saying it's not gory doesn't mean it's not upsetting, I guess. It's right. just the caveat that I do want to throw in. Yeah, and, th- and there are moments of gore. I mean, there's a dream sequence sure. in there that is absolute nightmare fuel um, mm. all day, every day, uh, for sure. But, you know, we talked about the technical mastery of the film and what Cronenberg's doing with the double shots. But also, I just want to mention that, you know, Cronenberg as director is doing a fantastic job in, in moments that are um, maybe, you know, easy to pass over that would be easy to film in a more traditional kind of way. But he does them in a way that, again, helps con- convey narrative information. There is a going away scene where Claire goes off to do a uh, 
a uh, another film, and so she's leaving Bev for a while, going to be gone for ten weeks or whatever. And it's this long shot way up the stairs, uh, distanced, you know, instead of this one two shot, you know, close ups that you might ordinarily do in a moment like that. And he's saying, "Please don't go," and she's saying, "I have to go," and I'll call you, and all of that. But that moment of separation between ourselves as the eye of the camera and the actors helps us to sort of feel um, the alienation of Bev's character, uh, which is really, really useful and moving, and a, and a really smart choice uh, that yeah. you would otherwise probably not think of doing. Well, it does go to show you, like, and we've been talking a lot throughout this marathon, and we often talk about this kind of stuff on the show, but, like, the the flourishes, the technical flourishes and, and like, kind of cool trickery that gets uh, picked up by filmmakers working in, in genre pieces carrying that over to the drama is like uh, a lot easier than you would immediately think and is super effective in, mm-hmm. in those kind of those ways that don't immediately come to mind right those sort of subtextual subconscious ways of using the camera to convey emotion and information right for sure and i i think cronenberg is really brilliant restrained and thoughtful about that yeah. again there was there's an easier way to do this which is not with a single take not with a long shot it is uh you know maybe it takes more time because you've got more setups but um making that choice really really works howard shore's score is uh melancholy and oppressive uh, throughout the film, and really, really, I mean, Howard Shore always does a great job, uh, and uh, so I really, really enjoyed that part of it, and I think it's a heck of a screenplay. I mean, I think it's really, really well written as a movie uh, in terms of dialogue. There's some double meanings, ha ha ha, uh, that are going on throughout the the, the film, and, and the ways in which that plays out. You know, it's so good that you're in one piece, you know, and which it doesn't come off as clunky as it really ought to. And uh, that's partly uh, Irons' performance. Again, Irons is great uh, as both characters uh, throughout. So I really, really and again, uh, we've, we've already mentioned set design, uh, the, the red uh, use of the, the smocks. But even then, there's a moment where uh, Bev is in pre-detox when he's hospitalized mm. with his addiction. And there's just sort of backlit, um, curtained off. Uh, ICU bed. Yeah, uh, there are d- several of these choices throughout the film that are just brilliantly done. The uh, the surgical tubing in the bed frame that's cool. <laughs> I'm not, I know it sounds like I'm being gross, but there's just there's cool decisions no, are made. Yeah, it yeah, is. yeah, for no, sure. As far as what props are used where, yeah. what costuming is used when. Love well, those glasses. And this is yeah. not a spoiler, but it is a bit of a plot reveal that it's not Elliot, it's Bev there. Because that's what, yeah, you yeah. know, and that you expected it to be Elliot. Yeah. And it's good stuff. I mean, again, really well written. Good choices yeah. are being made here in the screenplay in terms of dialogue and just in terms of how we're going to move this narrative forward and the choices. Well, how characters react to things, mm-hmm. right? And like, it would be so easy for, and Arthur, is, you know, you mentioned in your review, uh, well, actually, and Dustin, you did too. You were worried that it was, but we, I think we were all concerned that it was going to be this film that's just about Jeremy Irons preying on women. And, and while that, like, is a cemented as a part of, you know, this, these doctors are supposed to be, like, what, 34 years old. So it's cemented as, like, a massive part of their adult life is this grift that they've been running. But we have a character in the film and Claire, like, immediately called bullshit on it. And I think it's such a cool choice to have it be an actor because it allows you to have a character that uh, is really emotionally intuitive, can spot fake emotion very easily, can spot people putting on masks very easily. So it does... It's a very clever screenplay in that regard, and it, it does allow you to write a character that is, you know, nearly a clinician in their ability to know somebody's uh, 
uh, true desires in a conversation, right? For sure. I mean, that scene where she calls out Beverly as a very self-conscious reader, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, uh, and, and little stuff like that. It, it, yeah, it's, re- again, really, really well written um, as a movie. So um, I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, I give it a pretty enthusiastic endorsement um, as a result of that. So there you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts, uh, which are mostly pro and a little bit meh, but we're there. And uh, so we're going to move on now to this little thought exercise where we're going to construct a syllabus in a course in which you would use this film and what additional uh, films or readings you might use to teach whatever concept or course you are trying to teach at this time. So I'm going to go to you first, Dalton. Mm. How would you expand the syllabus using Dead Ringers? Well, I went down so many rabbit holes with this one because there is so much to work with. Uh, And every time I thought of a a class... um, that I could, you know, center uh, around Dead Ringers or use Dead Ringers in, I kept coming back to more movies directed by David Cronenberg, weirdly enough. So I was like, all right, well, we, we haven't done this in a while. Uh, let's go ahead and, and do a, uh, you know, an intro to film class using auteur theory, using a director, uh, using the filmography of a, of a director to kind of crack open film and, and st- start the basics of film analysis and, and film review uh, and, and, and the study of film. So I, I think we'll probably have this class kind of broken up in to uh, different subjects, uh, not necessarily genres, uh, but not also not necessarily story and subject matters. You'll see kind of how it's laid out, but I think definitely each of these blocks will be centered around a Cronenberg movie, and then we'll have other readings and other films uh, to kind of pair with it. Uh, so we'll definitely be looking at horror and the body. Uh, there's a lot of Cronenberg movies we could use there, and we'll probably use mostly Cronenberg movies in that one, I think. Um, if not full films, scenes from probably do some readings um, on uh, medical malfeasance as it becomes uh, relevant, but we'll save most of that for later. But we'll also look at something like Cabin Fever uh, from Eli Roth, which uh, game-recognized game, Eli. Eli, like myself, is a psoriasis sufferer, and uh, Cabin Fever is a uh, horror movie for people with skin issues, let me tell you. It is uh, a film that is not very good, but also speaks to me in a very serious way, and I'm sure anybody that's had to... uh, uh, just whether having skin that they don't like to look at sometimes uh, can appreciate Cabin Fever. And I, I think that is a film that is really indebted to the work of Cronenberg. And just the things that clearly trouble this man. Uh, Dave just can't stop thinking about how gross the human body is. And I respect that. <laughs> I respect it a lot. So we'll, of course, look at The Fly. Uh, we'll look at Scanners, probably. And I just kind of picked those because those are his kind of two most uh, body horror-centric films uh, that I'm most uh, aware of and most familiar with, I guess I should say. Uh, I think we'll also look at films about doubles, so we'll use uh, this film, of course, uh, but we'll also use uh, Jordan Peele's Us. Uh, we'll use uh, Jim Jarmusch's Patterson. Um, kind of probably do some readings on twins, uh, our society's, uh, well, society at large's fascination with twins, how different uh, cultures and societies have processed uh, twins. Um, and again, there's a lot of, we'll probably look at other films that kind of touch on doubles, but I think those are the big three. And I like Patterson, uh, because much like this film, uh, there's a lot of secret doubles. So this film is full of characters, uh, full of actors playing multiple characters, not just, uh, Jeremy Irons. He's just the only one that has, you know, shared screen time. Uh, but the film Patterson, uh, with, um, oh, what's the doodle? Oh my gosh. Kylo Ren. What? <laughs> Adam Driver. We all blanked for a second. Uh, Adam Driver uh, just keeps seeing twins throughout the film, and it's never really remarked upon or commented on. And uh, again, I just think uh, I know both of you will be looking at doubles a little bit in your classes, and I, I think it's an interesting look. Um, I think next we'll look at, use that to kind of jump into double lives, 
uh, and crime, which is something that Cronenberg worked uh, on twice back to back with Eastern Promise or uh, with a history of violence and then followed that up with Eastern Promises. We'll, of course, look at The Departed Infernal Af- and Infernal Affairs. We'll look at The Long Kiss Goodnight, uh, all three of which are films we've talked about on this show. I'll also look at uh, Al Pacino's Serpico, uh, the film about the uh, cop in the 70s who uh, knew that cops were bad uh, and tried to tell everybody about how New York PD was evil. Um, and I think that's kind of a fun opposite end of the double life and crime story from sort of these other films, especially Eastern Promises and The Departed, all kind of centered on undercover work. Um, and I think it'll be interesting to do a film about going undercover within the police itself. Uh, again, uh, lots of stuff to work on there. And Cronenberg, uh, much within in that film and in these other films where he's working with doubles, he definitely seems interested in uh, people who, for whatever reason, are having to very actively modulate their behavior. I think that's interesting. And we'll make an interesting segue into uh, films about reality. Uh, we'll be looking, of course, at the late 90s trifecta of Existence by Cronenberg himself, uh, Alex Proyas's Dark City, and the Wachowskis' The Matrix. We'll be looking at Simulacra and Simulation, and uh, Con and Baudrillard. Oh, Baudrillard. All the fucking smarty pantses. Yes, of course. But uh, I think we'll be more concerned with uh, things we've talked about on this show before. Um, the, the, the late 20th century, uh, in North America and these concerns with, um, postmodernism and, and, uh, realism and reality, uh, and just kind of this, uh, uh, soup, uh, that is existing in the culture at that point that cre- ha- causes all of these filmmakers to tell all these stories related to all these writings that have, you know, been around for what, a century at that point, some of them? Pretty interesting stuff. Uh, and then I think we will close on unethical doctors, um, unethical practices by um, academia and by uh, medical folks. Uh, we'll look at American Mary, which we talked about recently uh, on the show. We'll look at another Jordan Peele film, Get Out. And I think in this section, we'll kind of look at Jordan Peele uh, and David Cronenberg and how their careers are a little bit more similar than you would think uh, about how the transition from uh, Canadian schlock to respected uh, genre filmmaker and the transition from sketch comedian to respected genre filmmaker are not really that dissimilar at all. Uh, we'll, we'll look at um, some real examples of bad doctors. Uh, we'll look at an episode of the p- podcast Behind the Bastards, talked about fertility doctors and all the times they've knocked people up with their own sperm. It's a real thing that happens. It's real bad. Gross. And it happens way more than you would like to think. We'll talk about Marathon Man and all the smart Nazis that uh, were basically pardoned by the United States government. And mostly, yes, I'm including Marathon Man because we didn't get to talk about it and our How Have We Never Covered Marathon. But I think it applies here. And also, dentists are scary. Uh, and there is a scary dentist in that film. And we will also look at the film Experimenter uh, with Peter Skarsgård and Winona Ryder uh, about Stanley Milgram's obedience experiment. Uh, it's also about a lot of other parts of his life uh, and how that study on obedience won the the realizations of how he was ethically, how that study was ethically compromised, kind of messing up Milgram, but also the results of the study kind of messing up Milgram and realizing how susceptible people were to um, abuse when they could push their responsibility off on somebody in authority. I think it's really interesting. And again, we'll probably, I don't know that we'll use dead ringers again. Uh, we'll probably have to use a Cronenberg movie. I haven't actually seen a dangerous method, his film about uh, young and Freud. Very good. Um, yeah. yeah. And I've heard a very good film and I think we'll pair well with the experimenter since we'll be talking about uh, psychological and social research there. Uh, and did I mention, yeah, I mentioned get out already. And I think using, um, that film that is kind of explicitly this social horror film, as some people have dubbed it, I think talking about uh, instances of social research that were kind of morally and ethically compromised um, 
it'll give us a lot to work with. So that's the class. We're looking at film as a whole. We're looking at Cronenberg's work, and we're just kind of looking at how, even if you're working within auteur theory, that immediately causes you to kind of like splinter out and look at films connected to a filmmaker's uh, body of work. Very cool, very cool. I am a little surprised that um, Hannibal did not make its way in. Uh, Hannibal cannot make its way in. Because television? He's barred. I'm barred. Oh, you're barred. That's I, right. I can't reference the TV show Hannibal I forgot. for quite some time. Oh, right on. Okay, well, I guess I've done it for you now. Thank so. you. We now have the Mickelson rule. Yeah. Um, are you aware of, have you seen Cronenberg's uh, Crash? Because I have not. I thought about referencing Crash in the uh, the body horror one, and I'd actually forgotten to write it down, so I'm yeah. glad you brought it up. We probably will. Crash, if you don't know, listener, is Cronenberg's uh, car crash sex movie. And uh, prosthesis sex. Apparently and, yeah. much better than the other crash, but equally gross, uh, but in different ways. And also James Spader. James Spader, yeah, in that role, that uh, period of his career in the early 90s where he was like, I'll know how I'll wash teen movies off of me. I'll do a bunch of really sleazy sex films. And boy, howdy did he. Did he indeed. Uh, All righty. Well, uh, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What's do you remember sh- how everybody wanted to fuck James Spader for about five years? I was too old, for, I, too young I, for that. I well, I was too obviously, but now I am aware of it in retrospect, and it's very interesting. Oh, we were talking about Fine, this off air. I a while remember. Back. <laughs> Thank you. But, well, we were talking about this a while back yeah. to go on the Spader rant, but uh, no, we should always because my on Spader. first interaction, or real interaction, but my first kind of acknowledgement of him as an actor was when he showed up on The Office, and he's oh wow, you know, much older and yeah. after he's done Boston Legal, yeah, and so I'm like. Oh, he's he's fun. He's got a great voice. He's got a great charisma. And I'm like really cool. And then I found out he was like the sex symbol of the '80s, and yeah. I was like, "This guy, this well, James Spader." It's and so then... interesting that he parlays that like '80s sex symbol status, that like kind of James Vanderbeek sex symbol status, into like being the Willem Dafoe like weird sex symbol. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's fascinating career. Totally, totally. Yeah, really weird guy. Maybe do a Spader marathon sometime. Uh, was it Buffy? Uh, or like an early episode into the Spader verse. Yes, I love. I love. Well, <laughs> and listeners, sometimes that is how the marathons happen. Uh, the the cooks just start throwing things in the pot. Spader pig. <laughs> uh, Spader noir. noir. Yeah, noir Spader Spader pig. Wow, we are gonna. This is gonna be the marathon. It's, Anime Spader. Yeah. We'll find that one. That's easy. Uh, surely. Wow, yeah, I like that. But it's it's Buffy, right? We're like the first episode, maybe somebody references how hot yeah, James Cordelia Spader's. does. Yeah, so all the way yeah. into the late nineties, like culturally, That's it was thing. not weird to reference Spader as a fox. I love it for sure, for sure. Well, thank you very much for that, Mister Dalton Stewart. Hey, Arthur, what's your um, syllabus looking does like? Does it have any James Spader? Uh, it does not actually. Oh, sadly. sad times. I'm so sorry to disappoint all you Spader fans out there. Uh, mine is going to be, as alluded to, about dual performances. I went the lazy route this week. Uh, but I found this article over on Criterion, which I think sets the kind of groundwork for this quite well. Uh, it's called When Actors Do Double Duty uh, by Shoni Inlow. I may have mispronounced that, and I apologize if you do listen to this show sometime. Uh, but this is a kind of a really good uh, foundational piece about the theory of acting and how dual roles kind of play within that. Mm. Um and so I think it just lays a really good groundwork, and it uses several films as a case study, of which uh, Dead Ringers is one. Another one that is on my syllabus, which is Dr. Strangelove and Peter Sellers, uh, is also referenced here, and there are a couple of other titles. Um, but I like this quote here. It says, The medium of films adds another layer to the actor's hauntings. When we watch film, we watch the dead image of the actor bring to life the non-living character. And when an actor plays a number of different roles in the same film, it enhances this uncanniness. Mm. Such films are always, to some extent, about acting. The side of the double forces us to abandon the suspension of disbelief, 
uh, were used to extending to stars whose personae always precede and exceed their characters. Like Freud's concept of the uncanny, that which reflects ourselves back to ourselves in distorted monstrous form, the performances refracts and reflects its own processes, exposing the actor in all his phantasmal glory. Gee, I don't think Hot. any of this. Yeah, I don't think any of this is going to come back up when we get to ex, uh, to um, business time. I, I'm all a dither. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think uh, it's a really good building block to start this kind of. It'd probably be maybe even a course over acting, maybe dive back into what I talked about the prestige actor, like mm. maybe just building a course around performances and stuff gotcha. as a whole. Um, but I think the dual performance is always really fascinating to watch. Uh, and so for this course, uh, I think our selected viewings uh, would probably, I didn't even put these in any kind of order, but I, I want to go with Army Hammer as the Winklevoss twins in the social network. Um, mm. I think we could talk here a little bit about form and talk more about digital filmmaking yeah. and how that plays into it. Um, but also, uh, I think Army Hammer just does a great job uh, in that role or roles and uh, performing those brothers. Um, from there, uh, we're going to have a Nick Nick Cage section, uh, <laughs> and so we're going to do the obvious uh, adaptation where he plays the Kaufman brothers, um, which does, to your point, as you referenced earlier, usually there's some sort of like uh, costuming difference or a little bit of schlubbiness or something like that that kind of yeah. can change it, and they, they do make advantage of that. Totally. I was thinking of Fargo Season 3 when I brought that up, but you're right. Adaptation definitely yeah. has a, a schlubby brother and a not schlubby yeah. brother. And, and several on my list are going to play into that costuming effect. I thought I just knew you were going to go with Face Off. Well, that's the other one. Oh, there yeah. you go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Face Off is the other one because the other I Nicolas think Cage double movie. N- not only are they doing doubles, but they're playing doubles, playing the, the other. And I think go see our episode on Face Off for yeah. all the shouting about how great that movie and its acting are. Because yeah, the acting in that film is top notch. Because not only is it, it's not just Nick Cage playing John Travolta. It's Nick Cage playing John Travolta playing Nick Cage, and, and it's it, the other way around. And it totally scans. Yeah, and it works so well. And, and I think there is such a level of nuance to that type of performance that people miss because that film is so big and absurd that you kind of just chalk it up to them being wild, big actors. But there's a lot of nuance to what they're doing in that film. Uh, and so I think it would be ripe for, uh, for discussion here. Um, I think we would do a little bit of Mike Myers. Um, I, I would do, obviously, Austin Powers, because we'd have to talk about Austin, Dr. Evil, Fat Bastard. I mean, you could just do a day on Eddie Murphy and, and uh, Mike Myers. Oh, yeah, truly. easily. You do yeah. Nutty Professor. And I thought both, about that as well. Both actors bring pathos to like wacky yeah. characters, even when they're doing like a bunch of costumes and prosthetics. Yeah. And I, the other oh, one yeah, I want to pair is... Mike Myers' dad, and so I married Sorry, Nat- Mary, that's the yeah. other. Would so, you quit? Uh-huh. We're getting excited. <laughs> I like your. <laughs> that is the other one on my syllabus, though. Okay, <laughs> I would pair that with because it is Mike oh, Myers good. playing a very straight character in in I can't think of his name in that role, but he also plays his very over the top Scottish dad, uh, who is kind of a foreshadowing of Shrek or uh, Fat Bastard in some ways, and so I, I think that's really interesting. And I, I read somebody had mentioned, I guess at one point Mike Myers had had been compared to Peter Sellers early mm. in his career. And so I think bringing back in Dr. Strangelove at that point would be really interesting. Uh, I also want to shout out Margot Kidder, who had been uh, discussed for the rare role of Claire uh, Nouveau. Oh, cool. uh, but I want to talk about Margot Kidder and his sisters uh, from nice. Bride to Palma, nice. uh, which pairs incredibly well, I think, with mm-hmm. Dead Ringers um, as she gets to do the, the, dual, the dual twin role there in really interesting ways. Uh, finally, I think my last piece here is going to be the Netflix series Living With Yourself starring Paul Rudd. Okay. Um, Wherein he's doing more of the Christian Bale thing from from uh, the Prestige is he is playing the same character but with two different mindsets and attitudes. One who's kind of given up on life and one who's trying to be this, as you mentioned earlier, the the, the overachiever who is trying to steal your life. Yeah, and, and I think that's a really fun dynamic. But also, I think uh, the the level of 
physical comedy and physicality that takes place in there uh, where he has to fight himself or things like that. And that's fun. Uh, which is just so seamless and, and it looks great. So I'd probably get some more of that tech stuff with that and kind of look into the form of it and the technical aspects of it. Uh, but I think it's just a, a really good performance from Paul Rudd as well. And so that's probably where I would want to end this. Uh, maybe multiplicity. I didn't even think about that. But multiplicity, yeah, he does it five times. For sure. We, yeah. In this well, house, we love and respect Michael Keaton. So, Well, and the one that I was thinking of, and now that I know that you've come to the end of your list, I won't shout <laughs> ones out that might be on it. Uh, I think United States of Terra is... So yeah, I haven't good. seen Tony Collette, right? Tony Collette's great yeah, on it. I haven't it, seen that one, but I've heard good things. Yeah, you've well, and those those things you've good things you've heard are, are accurate. I'd say I I love it. It kind of ends on a uh, cliffhanger, and I love it when a a, a show ends on a season that like feels finite, uh, like feels conclusive, and yet there is kind of some trail off to it. But yeah, it just kind of uh, it lampshades that one ca- one actor playing multiple characters thing, and that it is about somebody with a dissociative identity disorder, mm-hmm. uh, and you know using that that article you mentioned does kind of get get at exactly what that show gets at right that there is some calling of attention to um the the acting and you know people who don't believe that this person when they she says that she has did and people who think she is playing all these these roles yeah Yeah. it's interesting stuff good good course man. thank you Dustin? All right, very cool, very cool. I, I, I love what you're doing, Arthur, and I really want to do something more specific in the role of doubles and double acting, and that is this idea of the uh, the Freudian, specifically Freudian kind of doppelganger work. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're talking the psychosexual yeah. uh, doppelganger. And, and I mentioned this movie last week when we were talking about Lacan, but um, I'm going to say it again. I, I think Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo is sort of the urtext for yeah. uh, working our way into this, and Kim Novak's performance yeah. as both Madeline and as Judy in the film, and the way in which uh, Scotty, played by uh, the great Jimmy Stewart, uh, sort of dresses her, rehearses her, directs her um, as she is uh, transitions from Judy back into Madeline, mm-hmm. although she never was Madeline to start with, and that was a false thing, and the way in which obsession builds. Uh, throughout the film, I think is just pretty fascinating uh, work there. Um, I also want to mention uh, Louis Bunuel's uh, That Obscure Object of Desire. It's been a while since that one came up. And uh, Fernando Rey is our main character there, and his obsession with uh, Conchita, uh, this character played by a French actress and by a Spanish actress. Uh-huh. And so the French actress's name is Carol Bouquet, and uh, she is cold and... Uh, withholding mm-hmm. and uh you know uh, m- much more of a tease and then the much more sensual sen- sensual performance uh from Angelina uh, Angela Molina Angelina Molina <laughs> Angela Molina um is is different and uh m- again much more I don't know, seductive um, as a as a general role, and gotcha. yet they both are the same woman. They're both Conchita, but they're not the same. And the sort of duality of the individual person and his perceptions of that person gotcha. sort of shift. And the way that perception shift is uh, sort of flagged by Boonwell here is uh, through uh, the different actresses playing her, and the way in which that obscure object of desire is unaccessible, inaccessible, mm. that we can't ever find her. And uh, I, I just find that really, really fascinating. Uh, Sisters, for sure, um, already talked about um, as a movie that would be uh, along the same line as well. Um, I also want to mention Mulholland Drive. 
which is uh, you know David Lynch's great film, uh, one of those movies that I always am talking about. But the way in which Naomi Watts uh, is 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 both characters, um, and the way in which that movie works is this sort of strange Mobius strip uh, throughout. And I think Patricia Arquette's performance in Lost Highway also does something quite similar um, as uh, sort of a case study, a practice sketch uh, to lead us up into Mulholland Drive. I like Lost Highway a lot, but it's a it's a different kind of movie uh, for that reason. Laura Herring also Laura has Herring. like a really... Again, Naomi Watts has like a lot more to do in the her double role, but Laura Herring's is also kind of really interesting. Well, it, she's both sort of the object of obsession and she's the obsessor herself. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the good girl and the bad girl and, uh, you know, the sort yeah, of I haven't seen horror stuff. That, yeah, it gets well, and we'll get into the Madonna stuff, right, in, in this film. But I think, uh, having not seen that Boonwell film you mentioned, but you've mentioned it enough, that I think talking about it and Mulholland Drive kind of in comparing and contrasting with each other seems like an interesting conversation for sure. Yeah, and, and so just, just thinking about the ways in which these doppelgangers are being used, the way in which um, you're using the same actor uh, to play different roles, which is, which is again, very fascinating in Dead Ringers and also in Sisters, but also the way in which you use different actors to play the same role mm-hmm. and to sort of show different kinds of ideas because, again, Naomi Watts is Laura uh, Herring in the dream sequence parts of Mulholland Drive. And it's a weird movie. Laura Herring way. is Naomi Watts in the real-life bits. And the ways in which they, they flip and flop yeah. is just, again, it's a Mobius strip of madness. And, again, Patricia Arquette is doing something similar. I'd probably just show some clips of Lost Highway. I wouldn't show the whole thing uh, for this particular film. Uh, class um, that we'd be doing. But it, it, just looking at these psychosexual doubles and doubling and how that all plays itself out, I think is pretty fascinating and uh, a definitely a worthy um, particular uh, bent on, you know, not necessarily doing Lindsay Lohan and the parent trap and the way in which doubles are fun. Although that one would yeah. be fun. You could also probably do fun psychosexual stuff with some scenes from Back to the Future 1 and 2. Right? Oh, right with on, what, yeah. Um, oh, my God. I want. I almost called her Jennifer Jason Lee, but it's not Jennifer Jason Lee. It's um. Oh, Leah Thompson. Leah Thompson. Leah Thompson. Like throughout one and two is like all these different variations on uh, Mama McFly. Uh, I can't think of her character name either in that film. It's been a long time since I've seen Lorraine. Back. Lorraine. All these like different versions of Lorraine, right? Like two contemporary versions of Lorraine and one and two, right? Past Lorraine and old Lorraine like it's yeah there's some interesting stuff like psychosexual like sounds like uh, all these weird movies Dustin's mentioned but like Back to the Future's got some heightened psychosexual themes going on in it so like there's a lot of stuff with that class I feel like uh, lots of uh, corners of rocks that have not gone uh, overturned yet yeah, for sure. I mean, and again, then the reading would be, you know, we'd be reading Lacan, we'd be reading um, Freud, we'd be reading some Zizek. Zizek's got a great sort of book-length essay on just Lost Highway um, that would probably find its way into the course as well. So that would be uh, the class, which would be weird and gnarly and, you know, um, sometimes, you know, subtly horny all the time. And uh, fun times would be had by all, <laughs> I would assume. So there you go, dear listener. Your syllabus just got much longer and weirder. Uh, moving right along, I think it's now time to get down to business. It's business. It's business time. I know what you're trying to say. You're trying to That's 
right here listening to that business is, as always, analysis. And, uh, boy, this movie gets down to business. Yeah, it sure does. Well, we were just talking about psychosexual stuff. Uh, so let's kind of, we always tend to start our conversations in form. And we've talked a little bit about the, the cool performance stuff already. So like, let's talk about the, the genre of, like, these psychosexual thrillers that, like, Cronenberg has made so many of. Uh, right. You've got Crash, which you, which has come up already. Uh, Shivers and Rabbit. Shivers and Rabbit, A Dangerous Method, which has come up already. Like, but a, a pretty existence has some of this stuff in it, too. Like, I mean, even to an extent, his adaptation of William S. Burroughs' Naked Lunch has got, or The Naked Lunch, has got some of this going on as yeah, well. It's a big chunk of his filmography. And I, I don't, is there anybody else whose filmography is, like, this full of. I mean, I guess Lynch a little Lynch bit. Lynch a little bit. He's yeah. got a lot, Lynch, a lot, but Hitch. it's only like two or three, really. Yeah. I don't know that there's any filmmaker who, like, I guess Claire Denis. I, I've only seen one of her films, but I know that it's a pretty common theme for her. As yeah, I well. think so. Yeah, it's like that in Trouble Every Day. It's yeah, I think I think so. Uh, maybe Catherine Briot has got some of this going on as well. Oh, sure. And then uh, Gaspar Noé. I guess what we're hitting on is it's mostly uh, Canadians Europeans. and French people yeah. that do this. And highly French influenced like Alfred Hitchcock, right? Sure. And so, I mean, there there's a way in which that's sort of where it plays out. It's a definitely a very art house kind of aesthetic, uh, which is, you know, different from, say, international quote-unquote cinema. Um, it is m- movies that will be shown at your local Museum of Modern Art. Yeah. Um, right. But again, I think Cronenberg, interestingly, has quite a bit of crossover success, right? Like, none of, the, I mean, what, this film makes $8 million on a $13 million budget or something like that. So it's, you know, hardly a success. Uh, and I, I don't imagine. Which is a crime. Well, hey, look, it, you know, it's on a list of the best Canadian movies ever made. So I feel like it got its due. But, like, Crash probably didn't make a lot of money either. Um, that's actually another interesting aspect of Cronenberg's career, right? Not just all the psychosexual stuff, but all the movies he's made that made little to no money. Uh, he really is one of those filmmakers, much like Lynch, who's just kind of gotten by on reputation. Jermush, I think, is another one, right? One of these per- people who just, like, has gotten by on always making their movie, um, even when it's, you know, they do work in the studio system. I mean, we talked about... Um, Dead Zone uh, this year, right, and how it is a Cronenberg movie and yet feels kind of separate from his whole filmography. Uh, but it is interesting, just like that's another movie that didn't make a whole lot of money. So it's 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 weird. Uh, look, sometimes uh, mediocre white guys keep getting chances to make Drek, and sometimes they keep getting chances to make things that are pretty good, honestly, even though there's no <laughs> really financial incentive, it seems like, to give them money. Um, do you think it is just like... Uh, this the film business being interested in its own myth making that they give like guys like Cronenberg and Lynch and and Claire Denis I guess you know obviously in France you've got government dollars going to film so there's less of a consideration and I think maybe well I guess maybe that is what we're getting at here uh, that we've, I've stumbled on is it is that countries like Canada and, and France have these these national funds that go to their filmmaking and you get more of the psychosexual stuff, potentially. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you can find some UK examples. Peter Strickland immediately comes to mind. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Duke sure. of Burgundy. The and, Duke and, well, and also, I mean, even Bavarian Sound Studio yeah. has got this sort of repressed... But they've got, yeah, they're, they're, they're national lotteries yeah. to finance their BFI right. and stuff. And so, I mean, you do find less of this in the States. I'm just trying to think of what American... I mean, Alfred Hitchcock is a huge, massive, yeah. you know... Um, 
icon of filmmaking, one of the first sort of celebrity auteurs of the United States, you know, when he's working here in America. But he's coming from the UK, and he's coming with this sort of heavy French influence. I mean, uh, we mentioned Midsommar last week. I think that's a pretty heavily psychosexual horror film. But, like, yeah, in the American sphere, it is, you know, indie studios mostly yeah. put out yeah. stuff like this. Well, yeah, Hollywood Studios not aiming to put out this kind of material because it's not going to attract the audience they want. Well, and I think to that point, as we were talking about, you know, countries with national art funds, right, it's, I think people go into this kind of movie knowing it doesn't have a ton of commercial appeal. Like, sure, right. like, it's weirdness or it's it's uh, titillating uh, factors might draw in some money, but it doesn't seem to be a concern for anybody. You seem to go into something like this knowing that you might lose money. Yeah, you got to play hard into the sleaze factor, it yeah. seems. I mean, I'm thinking like Paul Verhoeven's basic instinct, right? Yeah. Sure, Where, but Verhoeven, uh, like, finds a way to work in that, in all that sleaze in a way that makes it more commercial right. without uh, sacrificing like what he wants to do artistically. And then like Soderbergh's um, Sex, Lies, and Videotapes uh, mm. sells the sex but really doesn't have it in the movie. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, but that's where you, you know, you, you sell it as one kind of movie and then it turns out to be something else. Yeah. But that's where the popularity comes in because it is still playing hard into that sort of sleaze Frustrating category. Frustrating adolescence with uh, premium cable for generations. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hoping for one thing and getting something completely yeah. different. Hey, you know what? Sometimes that teaches uh, children about film in a good way, so there yeah, you go. Maybe, yeah. maybe so. So, yeah, that... Not I mean, maybe, so there's no maybe about it. I, I can speak for myself and a handful of other people I know of... Uh, Watched more than one like really artistic movie because they thought it was going to be horny when they were like twelve years old. Yeah, so I mean, I guess as long as it's a gateway drug into the good things, yeah. I suppose it works out. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's the first thing is is again there's the psychosexual thing as a as a way of you know categorizing yeah. a a group of films and specifically here it it is kind of centered on this knowledge of self, right? The ways in which like. Uh, the intersection of, of sexuality and the psyche can, you know, cause your your brain to hurt sometimes, I guess. Seems to be part of what Cronenberg's working with here. Well, I think there's an epistemology at work here, this sort of science of knowing, right? Uh, yeah, that, sure. that, that, and how that knowing of yourself gets more complicated when there's somebody that looks just like you. Well, there's the biblical sense of knowledge that Adam knew his wife, yeah, right? Sure, and sure, that, sure. that has an epistemological nature in which he knows Eve, and the way in which uh, the brothers Elliot and Beverly get to know each other is through knowing these women together, right? As, as sh not, not together simultaneously, but that they both share the experience of having both uh, slept with these women, right? Which is such a you you so quickly pointed out not with each other, and I think it is interesting. Like the film doesn't really speak explicitly to any homophobia going on uh, with Bev and Elliot, or you know, fear of incestual uh, attraction. But it doesn't need to because it is so clearly like part of the equation that I think right. the film knows it doesn't need to like speak speak the taboo. Right. Well, I mean, there's that moment where it's like Beverly and that kind of a girl's name, and you know, is, is you're saying I'm gay, you know, kind of. Well, moment. and I think also like this implication, right, of all the stories we hear of uh, uh, serial killers whose mothers wanted them to be girls, and it grew up to make them pretty uh, complicated, uh, to say the least, uh, violent people. Uh, and, and you know, just this this commonality of the the man damaged by his mother uh, making him be more effeminate than he wanted to be, right? Like th this is a, a common trope both in culture and within you know actual human interaction, right? And I think a lot about that dance sequence, you know, where uh, <laughs> uh, where the one the the, the, like, most, the recurring girlfriend that's actually multiple characters, I think, mm -hmm. wants to tries to kind of parlay her way into a three way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, uh, Elliot seems to be into it. Elliot's very into it. I know. think Elliot's the one trying to parlay. 
parlay it into a three-way. I think Elliot is definitely. Well, Elliot's to... clearly the more sexually adventurous. You one, call right? me Elliot, and you call me Bev. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I know that, oh, scene. that seems wild. Oh, I love that. And then that, that's where the sort of desire itself is that there is a sort of desire for them to know each other. And right? I thank you for getting back to that because it does come. The knowing again comes up, right? These women don't really know Elliot or Bev, and Elliot and Bev don't know these women because they don't look at them as people. They don't really look at anybody as people except for each other. It mm-hmm. seems like. Um, it is this kind of this obsession with the the image in the mirror that kind of overtakes their lives, uh, which is why I would like to ask twins who've seen this about how they feel about it, because it does. I don't know. Being a twin seems horrifying to me. And yet, like, that's just your life. There's always somebody that's looked like me. So that is just your experience yeah. of the world. But yeah. I am curious what that experience feels like on a like a, on a personal level. Uh, and I've I've never known twins well enough to like really, you know, put them in the hot seat about how they feel about being a twin. Yeah. But I am curious um, about it. Well, and I think the fictional world the film creates uh, a sense of a of a, of a psychic Siamese-ness between sure. them. Yeah. I mean, that is kind of the yeah. conceit of the movie, right? That's why it brings up uh, Ang and um, Chang. Chang, thank you. These very famous, uh, you know, Asian American twins who uh, you know made quite a name for themselves traveling. Uh, over as both, you know, first kind of as a sideshow attraction and then as like a, a lauded businessman, I think, at one mm-hmm. point. I've, I, I used to know more about their story. There's a really good dollop uh, podcast on that. Yeah, one of them was married. Um, well, they were both married at one point. Yeah, to two different women, yeah. yeah. And then, of course, there was, um, you know, the... Chang was an alcoholic. And yes, Aang which they not. talk about in the film. Right. Right, like Cronenberg seems very informed you know by referencing these these historical figures by name uh you know he's concerned with them but he also i don't know if either of you looked at this but this is based on two real twins yeah very very loosely of course but they both died shortly after they were successful doctors who died a couple of days apart from each other and so he is kind of weaving these two famous stories of twins with you know tragic uh deaths close to each other uh, it is kind of interrogating this the psychic connection that must surely exist uh, when you and again it's it is interesting for Cronenberg to seem to like want to sink his teeth so hard into something like does he have I'm sure he doesn't have a twin I would know if he did probably no but does he have siblings do you know has anybody looked uh, into this he's got a sister who's a set designer or a costume designer oh that's cool yeah well then I can relate to this even more uh, as you know if if we're gonna go ahead and go with this assumption that he only has one sibling and it's it's a sister. I think that's that's what is so interesting, I think, for me about this film, right? And I can see why maybe Cronenberg wanted to sink his teeth in the material, because as somebody whose only sibling uh, is the opposite gender from me, like, that informs, right, like, our relationship throughout our growing up with each other. And for you to have somebody, you know, we were close in age, that also informed, our, you know, our, our connection, uh, you know, our closeness, uh, you know, now in our lives and our lack of closeness when we were both teens and, you know, yelling at each other a lot, uh, you know, recontextualizing this the idea of a sibling relationship with that you know the again you the laconian mirror state right all that kind of stuff well everybody's got a mirror stage uh mm-hmm. in psychological development but you know thinking about the idea of just a uh, a psychic doppel right is it's a real head it's a picture head uh feel a couple sizes too too small sometimes right it's weird to think about and i can see why cronenberg is so obsessed with it um yeah, and, and, and I, just like probing the the emotional aspects of it. Well, I think there's a sort of a, a dual way and a monistic way to think about the character. What like do you mean we, monistic. Well, uh, in, in the, like there's only one. Mo- okay. There's Thank only you. one mantle. Gotcha. And we're seeing the, these different aspects. Right. Late in right. the film, they start introducing themselves as Doctor Mantle. Right. Yeah. And, and that there's a sort of you know th- 
this Dracula character, you know, it was what 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 um, Claire calls uh, Elliot mm-hmm. versus yeah. the sweet kind of nice sappy one. That, that actually both of those are the same person, and the way in which you know alcoholism and an addiction creates double lives yeah. within a, in a, in a single individual. So you've got this you know monistic way we can think about it and we can also think about it in terms of codependency uh, right. du- duality the ways what... in which maybe beverly's addiction issues aren't really as severe as elliot's right mm-hmm. and the ways in which like beverly's nice guy exterior does hide uh the same kind of psychopathy that is on the surface with elliot yeah mm-hmm. the, the, the ways in which they overlap and become the same person and the ways in which they like are established as separate is really interesting yeah, I, I don't know if we want to suss that out any further, but I just, you know, no, I, I want to name it at least. Exactly. I think we're good to name it because it is such a, like, a key part of the psychosexual stuff going on in this film, right? Is just this, if there is somebody that you feel like you can't separate yourself from uh, and your profession is uh, sexual organs, it is just going to, like, create a stew of madness uh, is kind of the... the, the um, the proposition that Cronenberg makes here. And, you know, I have to sign on for that, obviously. I'm sure, uh, you know, there's plenty of people who could live the exact lives of uh, Bev and Elliot and be normal folks. Mm-hmm. But it is, you know, I, I can see why he decides, like, this is the story he, he he thinks makes sense. Well, and I think that's what it comes down to, is that everyone does have multiple identities. Exactly. You are multiple yeah. selves. And uh, that some ways we can be integrated with that, in some ways we can be very fractured with that, and that sometimes we find those multiple identities coming into uh, conflict rather than into harmony. I think Claire's character is a great example of it being in harmony, mm-hmm. that she herself is a lot of people um, all the time. She's pretending to be people constantly. Yeah. And well, that's that, part of why Elliot says you can't trust her, right? Like, actors are always lying. Right. Yeah. But also, she's a very well-integrated person because she's so good at being other people and yeah. therefore able to see through someone who's uh, doing a very, very poor job of being multiple people. Yeah, again— Or I'll, one person being—yeah, well, you know what I'm saying. I do know what you're saying. And again, Elliot insists, like, that aspect of her is what makes her untrustworthy. And as we, you know, came up earlier, no, it is that aspect of her that makes her such a, a well-integrated uh, person, it is such a— uh, a well-rounded and emotionally intelligent person. Uh, it, yeah, it makes sense that, that that is the kind of person that could see through Elliot and Bev's act. Uh, and I think you, you kind of taking us on that. Um, well, did you have anything else you want to say on that? or I don't think specifically on that before. Yeah, you want to segue? Go ahead. Yeah, I think we could segue well into... So there's this quote that isn't actually an Oscar Wilde quote, but is misattributed to him about how everything's uh, about is sex. Is it the quote that says, um, on his deathbed, either that wallpaper goes or I do? It's a good one. No? No, it's the uh, everything's about sex except... Uh, everything's about power uh, except sex. Wow, good Lord. Everything is about sex except for sex, which is about power. Jesus. Um, not an Oscar Wilde quote, but, you know, attributed to him. And that definitely is going on in this film, right? Like, it, it presents us these interesting questions, uh, both in the gender dynamics between uh, Bev, Elliot, and, and the women they, they pursue, uh, but also in their conception of each other, their conception of women, and, like, what they get out of their relationships with each other and their relationships to women. Uh, it is very interesting, right? Like, what, what what do you do? Either of you have any thoughts on like what Elliot gets out of this and what Bev gets out of this, um, and how that like where we start with what they're getting, maybe, and where we end up with what they're getting. Well, I, I think again, it is uh, a desire for uh, closeness between the two of them that motivates everything that goes on, and the way in which they other everybody on the outside. Mm-hmm. You know, again, we think about their patients. There, their patients are simply kinds of cases. They're types. They're not actually people. So there are the 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 sad ones, and there are the frivolous ones. And I'm good at one, and I'm good at the other, but they're still not actually people. It's just 
this idea and th- that these women eventually become in their minds mutants right everyone's was well, um, it just in bev's mind though isn't it just bev that comes to think of them that way i don't think elliot kind of really goes down that same rabbit the, hole i mean i think his rabbit hole seems to be much more about right their twinness his sexuality you know the the paying for uh to sleep with sex worker twins uh, and having them call him both names, right? The trying to initiate the three-way with him, Elliot, and the their share, their one or him, Bev, and the one shared girlfriend who doesn't seem to care. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, Bev's journey of it does become more about organs and uh, the idea of like physical connections versus psychic connections. Well, and there's this lack of closeness that the film opens up with, with this little story about how fish have sex, right? Yeah. Because they don't have sex because there's no actual people involved. Another key scene in the film, right? Connection, connect, or touch involved, I guess. Yeah, it's the one bit of backstory we get on them, right? We don't know anything about how they were raised, how their parents, we just get like one scene of what they were like as kids and how they were always kind of weirdos. The weirdest kids ever, right? Just weirdos. I don't know, I think... Bev seems to, at least early in the film, or kind of at the, especially at the midway point, which Arthur, I know, dragged for you and really did for me as well. But I think what's interesting about that sequence of the film is for me, it made me feel like Elliot seems to get out of this being number one, right? He likes controlling Bev. He likes to be the hot shot and likes to have Bev being the one working in the shadows because he uses Beverly's name. He doesn't present as Elliot. He presents, you know, their their papers and stuff like when he does lectures he's presenting as beverly which i don't know it it does seem to speak to elliot as the overachiever who wants to assume and consume beverly and and beverly is much more interested Uh, it seems like beverly because of his like neuroses uh and um you know social uh feelings of social inadequacy it's never occurred to him to be his own person until he like meets claire right and it does kind of force claire into this you know, woman savior role, uh, who, who's going to save this man who's never considered his life at all, really. But I know it is interesting that it it is only when Beverly's like, no, I like her, I want to date her, that that Elliot finally is like, really kind of puts his, his foot down and tries to really start wrestling control of what he sees as their life away from Beverly. You know, is this movie... Um David Cronenberg's Fight Club is um, Elliot yeah. Beverly's Tyler Durden. I yes. mean, I, I think that's, but well, it makes a lot of the same connections in more tragic ways, right? right? About n- quote unquote nice guy masculinity and how that can belay some like truly misogynistic stuff, right? And like how Beverly's obsession with what he sees as abnormal uh, genitalia becoming this kind of all-consuming aspect of his personality. Um, it's yeah, it does kind of speak to the ways in which outwardly chauvinistic behavior might belie like more uh feelings of equality than than you would think and how again the opposite side of the coin can hide more like uh vileness than you would think and again it, when it comes down to who does the murder it's beverly yeah beverly murders murders elliot yeah it is beverly becomes too unhinged elliot becomes uh too drug addled and beverly becomes too um unmoored from reality um you want to talk about the spooky cardinal scene, uh, which is what I call the operation with the red robes, because uh, mm-hmm. it is that fun connection back to those Renaissance and medieval the sketches. The paintings, yeah, yes, mm-hmm. and we title get cards. we get the title cards, and then yeah, and then we come around to the 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 spooky surgery scene that thankfully we don't actually have to see because thank goodness, El, yeah, Beverly passes out from exhaustion before he can actually use his tools. Yeah. Uh, but it is this weird hitting on the anesthesia. Hitting on the anesthesia. Wow. Yeah. Truly 
bananas stuff, but it is this, you know, using kind of religious iconography, right? Using uh, these kind of very Inquisition robe looking scrubs, using these tools that look like Inquisition era torture devices. Um, it is this kind of weird connection between medicine and torture. Um, I, I, I not much like you said earlier. I don't know that I have anything to say about it. I just want to name it because I think it's very visually and thematically interesting. Well, and I think the tableau of that last scene, you know, also with the the little smocks of the of the surgical gown and the sheet on uh, Bev as mm. uh, he's cradling the dead Elliot in his lap, and he is dead himself at that point. Finally, yeah, that uh, that that again sort of recreates that Renaissance era yeah. kind of tableau yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. I just, I just I don't well, know. and connects back to the weird dream sequence of uh, Claire trying to separate them with her teeth. She pulls out an umbilicus between them or something like that, I guess. Love it. I'm not sure what it is, but it's awesome (laughs) and awful. It is. It's super gross. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to look over my notes real quick to see if I've missed. Have we, either of you have anything we haven't hit on? That's the main stuff I want to make sure we talked about. Yeah, no, like uh, we kind of covered everything out of order, but I, I think I got everything. Uh, I don't know. There's one like really 80s moment uh, where uh, uh, Beverly gets insulted that a patient uh, finds his tool, uncom- his instrument uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he talks about how it's gold and how it's the best there is. It's real right. 80s shit. Re- yeah, real, real Trumpy uh, yeah. kind of moment there. Totally. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I wrote that down just because it was a weird scene. Um, oh, there we go. I do have one that we haven't talked on. I guess it allows us to talk a little bit more about Claire, who again... Yes. Um, I don't know. I feel like the film doesn't know how to use her because we talked about uh, the, the Madonna whore duality complex that so many male storytellers seem to have. Uh, I don't know that Cronenberg has that necessarily, but the film seems to have it a little bit, if you see my making. I don't know. I feel like it doesn't know how to deal with... It can't keep Claire in the picture because it can't conceive of a version of Claire that tries... I don't know, that fights more against Elliot and Beverly. Uh, I don't know. The film just kind of, like, shuffles her off. And I guess it's necessary for, like, Bev's mental decline uh, to just, like, fully misunderstand uh, his relationships with other people. Uh, right. Well, she's more, I mean, she's less character, more plot device. At that point, I mean, yeah. yeah. Well, I think she's Early too- on, she's there thematically, I think, to connect the dots about performativity and roles and dual roles and things of that nature. But then she's also there to get... Bev to his downward spiral. But she gets to be so much of a character in that first act, I guess. That's why it is kind of frustrating that she really exits the film as anything other than a plot device, as you said. Well, I think she's too balanced of a figure for the movie. I think uh, she because she is balanced, um, and mm. the movie is about losing Imbalance. synchronicity there, uh, yeah. that if she yeah. if she continued to be there and wasn't gone for ten weeks... She's the film's equilibrium. Yeah, she, okay. would, she, would, she would steady, I think, what happens, yeah. and that would be a problem, because yeah. we need this thing to go off the rails. Because, yes, she is addicted to drugs, but she also has found some way to live that out in a balanced kind of way. Yeah. She can live in multiple kind of lives. She can be very, very vulnerable, you know, uh, regarding her inability to get pregnant. But she can also be very, very tough, and uh, you know, sort of take care of her um, her own uh, emotional well being. Emotional well being, and say, you know, I'm done with both of you jack wagons. And it is interesting that she is willing to forgive Bev to me, uh, and well, and Elliot too, in her way. In a way, but I don't know that that could really easily feel like a forced plot machination and i don't know i feel like it's sold well by the script and by the performance um i guess we can end on this line from her though uh that i think is really great and kind of a fun place for us to end this conversation Uh, she has uh excuse me 
at the uh, the uh, dinner conflict, the, the dinner confrontation that we've talked about a couple of times, uh, Elliot says to her, am I really that different from Beverly? And she says, you really are. Yeah. Uh, and I think the interesting question to ask is, by the time we get to the end of the film, right, that is kind of the end of Act 1, are they still that different? Have they become more or less the same person in that, that moment, Dustin, as you said, where they're dying together in this tableau where they've reunited as one being? Um, are they that different? Do they remain separate from each other, or do they fully lose and you know end up becoming uh, one soul? I, I think that is the problem, is that they've been trying so hard to be as codependently integrated as possible, either in a dualistic or monistic kind of way. Mm-hmm. Both of those work in the same sort of negative kind of spiral, and that when they finally begin to share in their addiction, mm-hmm. right, um, and they both go down that same spiral, that's when they are just too much of... Uh, copies of one another they're not size of a coin any longer they're facsimiles and they're copies of a copy of a copy which is degraded and that's where they've really begun to uh fall apart and that's how the death sort of results in that moment right? yeah i like that reading yeah I, that's yeah, that is good it is the uh the, the moment where their addiction to each other kind of reaches a tipping point and uh you know they they lose that balance that claire has right she is balanced in her ability to kind of function with her addiction um, as kind of just a more of a practical aspect of her life than, you know, uh, in a, something she's struggling with. Honestly, I just think it's, uh, she just got black book pharmacology working in her life. You know, she doesn't seem to be an addict to I, me. Exactly. I kind of love, again, I'm talking about things about this character that are interesting. I, I love that she is just like low-key a pharmacological expert, mm-hmm. uh, which is fun. It was just a fun character trait. Yeah. Yeah. She uses drugs. She's not a drug addict. Which, what, yeah, exactly. And it makes, I don't know, it, it makes uh, Bev's attraction to her, like, really interesting, right? Like, Bev is attracted to this kind of, like, what he sees as an amateur doctor in her own right. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm very interested, uh, and maybe this is why it got this film got its hooks into me a little bit more than you, Arthur, is because I did really like the power play. Basically, every scene, every scene featuring Claire is great because it does so much to strengthen the conflict between Bev and Elliot. And I am less interested in that second act that lost you as well. Um, I like where it ends up, Dustin. I think you've made a really interesting case for like what's so cool about the third act. But uh, I think the more we've talked about it, the more I am like, man, the second act of this movie sucks. And I think it is because we lose Claire, which kind of, again, the dream about the two of them and Claire, I think kind of is a, is, is a fun, but maybe a little bit too on the nose and costs us what could have been some like really interesting scenes of dialogue. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I think that's, that's all. That's all I had to say. All right. Well, very good. Very good. Let's render a verdict then with dead ringers. I'm going to go to you first, Arthur. Has our conversation warmed you at all? What do you say? Shelf or trash for Cronenberg's dead ringers? I am really torn because it hasn't really warmed me too much. Um, there are things I really do like about him, and it's mostly just Jeremy Irons' performance. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm willing to shelf it almost totally based off of that. Uh, I think that alone uh, is is strong enough because it's a great performance. I think that uh, narratively, it still is just not doing anything for me. Uh, I, I thematically, uh, I, I think it works fairly well. I, I think the human horror story character study that it goes into resolves itself in a really interesting way. And I, and I like that that closing section of the film and, and kind of where it, it winds up. But there's just so much. So it's it's a very, very, very light shelving for me. All right, very good, very good. What do you say, Dalton? I don't know if I would like this film as much as I do if I hadn't already seen The Fly, 
when I got to it, but I think the just these two films as, you know, back-to-back uh, works from Cronenberg and kind of the overlaps of knowledge, power, sex, and masculinity and, like, exploration of these topics that you know, are just topics I find really interesting to explore with film uh, and uh, especially when they're critiquing all of those things and the way we, we tend to view them as uh, as a society, man. Uh, so, yeah, this is a shelfer for me. I was about to say some real, like, grandiose shit about how it's maybe my favorite Cronenberg and I'm not I don't know that I'm ready to go that far uh because I actually think I like The Fly and oh, A History of Violence probably a lot more but I I think this film's really good and I, again Arthur as you said that the Jeremy Irons performance is great um Genevieve uh ooh, the hard French Canadian name sorry uh as Claire I again an actor that I'm not aware of outside of this film that just kind of like blew my hair back so again I think for performances and again just seeing a a quote-unquote genre director work in a really restrained mode, I think that's super valuable. So I think just because of how it pairs with the fly, I immediately have to throw it on the shelf. We do have to assume that her Staten Island accent is uh, put on because she is a French-Canadian actress, right? I think the French-Canadian accent's there in the film a lot. Oh, I, I, she feels very Staten Island to me. I think that's just how uh, francophones from Canada sound. Is that it? The, the accent's a lot different than, yeah, than like Parisian French. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If you're from Toronto, then you have a slight British accent. <laughs> well, let's think. Accents in Canada are complex, man. I'm not, I don't. I feel like I hear lots of Canadian people who like I can't place their accent, and then I find out they're Canadian. I'm like, oh, okay, I guess, well, that I makes guess sense. it checks out then. But yeah, like I agree that Iron's accent work leaves a little to be desired. Well, I, I don't think he's trying. doing it. He's, just, he's, he's not even trying. He's being Jeremy Irons. That's fair. Well, he's I not guess even doing it. He's accent. got kind of a like a real non-accent for an English person anyway, so I think it helps. Yeah. All right, very good. What, well, what about you? I am saying shelf, and I'm saying shelf hard. I'm. Where's you, are you a Cronenberg completionist? Oh, well, you said you haven't seen Crash. I haven't already. seen Crash, and I think that's the only one I got left at this point that I have not seen. Well, how's it rate for you so uh, far compared I, to the rest of them? I think it may be my second or third favorite. We've done a lot of Cronenberg on this show. I'm starting to realize, and so like I think I put the Naked Lunch ahead of it a little bit, and okay. I think I would put um, History of Violence ahead of it a little bit. Okay, uh, but then I think it's that's that next. Well, you rate this over the fly then, huh? Uh, yeah, I do. I do. I like the fly a lot. Well, and I, I'm still wrestling with those two just because I think they pair so interestingly. Right. Uh, but I'm, I'm oh, okay. I'm and surprised. I, I would have guessed you to go fly over this just because for its creature feature delights. I, I mean, I love that stuff about it, but I, I, I think there's just, there's more going on with this movie. I just, I love its complexity. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's real. And again, that's probably why I like Naked Lunch so much too. Yeah. And the source material is also a draw for me. But yeah, um, and this is getting shelved right next to that obscure object and Mulholland Drive for me. Um, and you know, would be a weirdest three peat of all time. Don't ever do that. Um, yeah, you'll you'll yeah you'll leave addled uh, in that moment. But yeah, I like it a lot. Well, listener, if you like this film a lot, or you like weirdness a lot, or uh, have any thoughts at all, there's ways that you can be part of the conversation with long form feedback. You can find us good trash genre cast at gmail dot com. You can uh, write us about this episode. You can write us about Shocktober. Uh, we haven't even mentioned yet that this is, oh, yeah. I hadn't come up. We were just, look, it's just so firmly spooky season. I hate calling it spooky season. It's so clearly the season of the witch at this point that we forgot to mention. We are in Shocktober, our annual horror marathon. Uh, it's been fun picks so far. 
so if you have thoughts on the marathon, how this fits in as a horror movie, good trash genre cast at gmail.com for that long form feedback. If you just want to see what we're up to, you can go to at good underscore trash on Twitter. Uh, you'll find uh, news articles we retweet, uh, funny funny musings on uh, film news of the day, uh, and links to episodes as they come out, both for this show uh, and other shows that are part of the, the tiny little but much close, much close, good lord, I'm bad at words today, uh, the Good Trash Media family, uh, sh- uh, postings for episodes to The Praise Down with Heath and Alex, or uh, The Wheel of Randy with Dan Wade. Uh, so that's at good underscore trash on Twitter. If you want to keep up to date on that, rate, review, subscribe, blah, blah, blah. You know, you've listened to a podcast before. Um, are we on Spotify yet? Did that work out? Would, uh, I haven't done a thing. It's, so okay. it's, it's on me now, and I haven't done it. It's, it's coming. It's be a running soon. joke at this point. It will be a running joke. So, listener, there you go. Keep your eye out for that. It's been my responsibility for like a week. Don't and worry I just about it. Done it. Stitcher Radio and Apple Podcasts, though. Oh, we are trying. I, I did submit this to Amazon Podcasts. That's a thing? Yeah, they just launched a, a recently. Do you think they're going to make AI copies of us? Mm, probably. Oh, man. Uh, so anyway, rate, review, subscribe. You and your double. Anyway. Well, I'm coming for him if he exists. Uh, there can be only one. Uh, <laughs> is there anything else? Oh, well, there can be more than one uh, listener. It does turn out there's another show that we do. It's behind the paywall. If you want to go to patreon.com forward slash GTM, uh, you can throw us some money uh, to help us pay for stuff like uh, upgrading our hosting fees so we can get on Spotify. In uh, which Dalton and I play multiple characters. There we go. That's true. We do play multiple <laughs> characters on uh, Good Trash Archdiocese. Uh, where we play Monster of the Week. Arthur is our campaign manager. That's not what it's called, but I'm going to call him that from now on. The assistant. Four week. more years. <laughs> Four more years, Arthur. <laughs> Arthur, also known as David Axelrod. Uh, so anyway, if you want to listen to us play play games with dice, that's uh, patreon.com forward slash GTM. You can also get some coffee mugs and some, some Blu-rays sent your way. It's a fun time. And that's the social media's stuff. Next week, we close out. Shock Tower. You'll be exiting my house of horrors, listener. But this one was a a, a real heavy episode, so we're going to be lightening things up more in the house. Significantly. More in the house vein from last week. And we will be watching Joe Dante's Gremlins 2, his follow-up to Gremlins from many, (laughs) many years uh, prior in this show's history. We discussed that uh, in our very first and to this point only holiday movie marathon. Yep. Um, So now, uh, winter holiday movie marathon, I guess. But we will be revisiting the Gremlins cinematic universe next week. Uh, Have either of you seen Gremlins 2, the new match, before? Many times. When I was a wee child. Arthur, I'm right there with you. I saw it. Many times as a wee child, mostly just like in bits and pieces on cable. Mm-hmm. Singing New York, New York already, guys. All right. Mm-hmm. So excited. Mm-hmm. Listener, mm-hmm. join mm-hmm. us for mm-hmm. the uh, festivities, the fireworks, and candy-filled uh, extravaganza that will be our close to Dalton's House of Horrors, this, the Shocktober 9 Marathon. That's right, dear listener. So you keep watching, we'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.